everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Like you, I could never figure out why some people seem to get all the luck. I mean, come on, this guy, president, are you serious? This is a comic book podcast, not a political podcast, brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwart. Go to Seekwart.org to get the best in comic book and pop culture's news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, Seacourt is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. So, Sean, what has been going on in the comics news? Well, sadly, we have to start with our, it really is becoming a tradition at this point, our in-memoriam corner. Rest in peace to Joan Lee, wife of Stan Lee, who is reportedly the person who convinced him to do the Fantastic Four with Jack Kirby. So, in a way, she is a big part of Marvel's history of what they became, so... As the story goes, and that's the story Stanley has been telling for a long, long time, he was about to quit comics. He was getting tired of it, he, he was going nowhere in it, and he was about to move on and try something else, and she convinced him to, just for once, try and write something that he wanted to write, not something that he got as an assignment from above. Like, they yeah. told you to do the superhero group, fine, but do it your own way. Don't just copy-paste Justice League as they wanted you to do. And thus... A universe was born. Yeah. Yeah, and condolences to Stanley now that he hears us, but, you know... He might, you never know. It's it's one of those people get old. Like, yeah. And, and those creators that basically birthed the way we think about superheroes, the way we think about American comics... Uh, most of them are getting there. And in our lifetime, in this podcast lifetime, we'll probably have to say goodbye to them all. I am bracing myself for that, to be honest with you, especially when you hear, you know, uh, Joan was in her 90s, which, you know, all things considered is a long life and a legacy, a powerful legacy that's left behind. But yeah, it's sort of that whole Tolkien thing about, you know, the passing of an age and, and it's going to be rough. But the best that we can do is honor and respect what these people have created, which, in a sense, is going to outlast them. And we will someday soon, hopefully not too soon, uh, lose Stan Lee. But, you know, I'm going to be crushed by that when that happens. But at least when it does happen, the tiny consolation is like, you know, part of him is like laid at the foundations of the Marvel Universe. And the Marvel Universe is going to be around... Until Axel Alonso bankrupts it again with all these <laughs> wow. lenticular covers. And then who knows what'll happen. So, you know, let's, we should appreciate them while they're here and respect their legacy when they're gone. Well, the kids are going to know him because he's in all those Marvel movies. And apparently they shot his camo appearances for the next five Marvel movies in advance. Through to the end of Infinity War, which I understand. Um, speaking of Marvel movies, you want to talk about a, a Marvel movie? Yes. So, ah, oh, I'm smiling right now just like in the lead up to talking about it. So on Saturday, I went to see Spider-Man Homecoming. The Joan Watts, technically Marvel Universe, partially owned by Sony Spider-Man reboot thing. I'm a it's a really weird custody battle that we've been witnessing this whole time. And poor Tom Holland sort of caught in the middle, like the prodigal son was like, his parents are getting divorced. But let me start by saying, we have to acknowledge the unusual circumstances of this movie, because 
this, like you said, this is a collaboration between Sony and Marvel, right? Yeah. A partnership that I don't think from the moment that Sony picked up their properties and held onto them so tightly, I don't think that anyone expected them to ever collaborate for any common purpose. In fact, it was pretty clear that, you know, once Marvel recovered from their bankruptcy, they pretty strongly regretted selling off one of their most, if not the most iconic characters that they had. The most. Uh, there, there isn't even any argument about who's the most, the biggest Marvel character. Well, maybe Wolverine, I guess. No, no. I'm sorry, Wolverine fans, but no, no. Up there, it's Spider-Man, Superman, and Batman, and down there is everybody else on various levels. That's fair. I can I can accept that. So, also, on top of that, like, look at how, on paper, this had catastrophe written all over it, right? Think about it in terms of, this is the third Spider-Man we've had. This is the second reboot. The movies have been going on since 2002. We had Sam Raimi, and Sam Raimi unfortunately ended on a very, very dire note because Spider-Man 3 is garbage. Amazing Spider-Man had, you know, solid casting for the main character and not much else to go for it. And then there was that whole controversy with Andrew Garfield and Sony, and that poor man just got booted unceremoniously from the franchise. And in comes Tom Holland who makes his debut in a movie that's not about Spider-Man, right? He was shoved in as a very, very much a last-minute insert into Civil War and charms the audience, but you don't really know if he can do the whole thing on his own. And then this movie comes out. I mean, it started with the casting, right? Also, from all the trailers, it looked like Robert Downey Jr. was just going to take over this film the way he did Civil War, and it was going to be like Iron Man 4.5, which, quite frankly, I don't think anybody has time for that. Michael Keaton was cast as a vulture, which was brilliant casting, but... Two years after Birdman, all the jokes. Yeah, a bit much. And so all of this, it actually reminded me so much of the circumstances that were leading up to Ant-Man. But where Ant-Man, in my opinion, managed to be a serviceable comedy film in the end, in spite of all of it, and never really going beyond that, I have to say that I think Spider-Man Homecoming is, unqualified and unchallenged, the best Spider-Man movie I have ever seen. And I have seen all of them. I'm going to have to agree. The Amazing Spider-Man movies I thought were garbage, both of them, so that's not really up to challenge. The Sam Raimi movies, as time went on and all the faults became clear, I'm not so hot on them. But even with this clarification of I'm not the world's biggest Spider-Movies fan, I really, really like Spider-Man Homecoming. And what's amazing to me, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it because... I also have a movie podcast in Hebrew, so I already vented on Spider-Man this week. <laughs> What's amazing to me is that even though this film has like eight credited writers and therefore about two dozen uncredited rewrites in the background, it still feels like a cohesive story unit. It's still a yeah. movie about something, about the character. There's a character arc for Peter Parker, and from that character arc, there is also a larger point to be made about the way kids are growing up and the way they relate to their parents and the way you find your father figure. And it does it, by the way, a lot better than Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which also had a large plot point about the father you choose versus the father you had and who you choose to be when you grow up and you must go your own way and blah. 
Spider-Man Homecoming does it a lot better, and I think a lot of it comes from the Vulture, which is one of the big criticisms about Marvel movies is that their villains were often just dull, perfunctory guy that needs to be punched up in the third act. Uh, the Vulture works as a villain. Uh, I won't spoil. There's a great reveal in the last third of the movie, which is just made me gasp. <laughs> it was such an amazingly, and they almost didn't telegraph it. It's like mentioned in the background something, and you you don't think about it, especially if you're a comic fan, because you expect the narrative to go one way, and then they zag, and you're like, oh, that makes total sense, and I never would have seen it coming. Well, see, that's the interesting thing. I went to see this movie with someone who knew nothing about the comics. Yeah. She picked it up and me. She anticipated it. Because there's a relation between two characters that you don't expect if you're a comic fan. Exactly. Exactly. There's a trick there where you assume that certain characters are who they were in the comics and they're not. And it is a really clever trick. But the other big thing is I really like their presentation of the vulture as this guy who's like faux working class hero who keeps on banging on to his people about, oh, the elites, they just take what they want and therefore we have to fight back, which is very, very Trumpian because we see the way he lives. He lives in a nice house in the suburbs, so he's faking it. And it, there's this very smart contrast within the script between uh, the two fathers that, between Peter Parker, Tony Stark, and the Vulture because... Tony Stark is a rich asshole who knows that he's a rich asshole. And he has no apologies about it. And the Vulture is a rich asshole who likes to pretend he's a working class dude. And then you have Peter Parker who actually comes from a working class background. And comes from the, you know, the bad neighborhood. And really has to claw his way to the top. And wants to get out of there. This whole movie is about Spider-Man wanting to join the Avengers. He wants, he wants it as, he sees it as his ticket out of this life. And the end, he makes a different choice, which is an amazing, like an amazing way to structure this story and to fit the idea of Spider-Man as a young hero into the Marvel movie universe. And I mean, there's also the father that you don't see, which is I have to give Homecoming so much credit for this. How many times, Tom, have you and I said, we know the origins of these heroes. We do not need to see them again. And Homecoming finally finally takes that to, to heart because not only do you not see or hear about Uncle Ben the entire movie, this is not an origin story. Neither was Civil War, right? By Civil War, he's already active. He's already doing his own thing. That's because kids, everybody knows who Spider-Man is. Kids in their womb are fed that with their mother's milk. It's like, uh, this is life. This is your daddy. This is your mommy. Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive <laughs> spider and then his Uncle Ben was... It's, it's as common as knowledge can get. I'm pretty sure more people know the Spider-Man story than they know the story of Jesus. Now, it's not a perfect movie. Far from it. Uh, the rescue scenes are done really well and I really wish all the trailers haven't spoiled the scene in the boat, which is one of the best in the movie. In terms of forcing the hero to work and, and making him pay for it. But the final fight scene is just... Very dull CGI slugfest and shot in a very annoying, you know, sparks flying everywhere and shaky cam and I have no idea really what's going on. Well, I will say one thing about that final sequence though. What initiates it is 
And I'm pretty sure it was a gesture to one of those anniversary covers of, you know, that, that popular image, like Spider-Man lifting the, the rubble. Yeah, yeah. It's from something about, like, Aunt May was dying, so. It's, it's Amazing Spider-Man 33, the final chapter, probably the best, or at least the most essential Spider-Man story ever. Yeah, it's a super iconic scene, right? Where he's like lifting this massive amount of debris off his shoulders because he has no choice because he has to get to Aunt May or she's going to die or something like that. Yes, yes. And the film took that and did something that I thought was so clever, which was that rather than make this a moment about the masked hero rising up or whatever, they started with Tom Holland like freaking out and crying which they lucked out here, Marvel and Sony, both of them together, lucked out with this actor who, despite being older than, you know, the character is meant to be 15. I think when he filmed this, he was like, what, 19, 20? He's 21 now. So yeah, he was probably 20. Yeah. So it would have been in that age, but he manages to, how can I put this? I was talking about this with a friend a, a couple of days ago. It's like the whole process of like casting older than the age that you're presenting is common knowledge because, you know, first of all, older actors presumably have more experience, better range, but also there's laws governing the way teenagers, how many hours can they shot and what can you put them at risk or not? And older actors are not beholden to those. But the flip side of that, sort of the problem that it's created is that no one looks their age in these films anymore because no one is their age, right? Holland, however, is close enough so that when he is pinned by that rubble and he just like bursts into tears because he's helpless, you feel a level of sympathy for him that I don't think I ever felt for Maguire's Parker, certainly not for Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker. Because in the back of your mind, you know that they're older than their character is meant to be, so they're not actually as vulnerable as they are attempting to... Like, you remember Spider-Man... In fact, Raimi did this, didn't he? In the second movie with... In the second uh, movie, uh, yeah, Spider-Man is also buried under all, and then he lifts it up. But yeah, yeah, there's something about the image of a kid forcing his way through that works a lot better than an adult, because adults aren't meant to freak. Now, if I were stuck under wall, I would freak right out, but in our mind's eye, adults aren't meant to start crying about it. If Iron Man would start crying in the middle of an Avengers movie, even though it's totally justified because aliens are shooting at him and he's about to die, the response from the audience would be, really? He's doing this now? When this 15-year-old kid does it, it's, well, yeah, obviously he would do that. That's actually been a criticism of mine of, of the MCU. You know, I do enjoy these movies, but I have noticed that when they tend to portray the superheroes, there's an element of detachment there. Like the first thing that comes to mind in terms of like, why is this person not emoting more is in the Winter Soldier when when Steve actually sees Bucky for the first time. And then he's in shock afterwards talking about like, you know, uh, uh, they must have done this. I don't understand. Like, how is he here? Whatever. But like, he doesn't actually look that shaken up. He's not distraught, right? And everything that happens afterwards is like Peggy's death also. He sort of has that moment and then it just passes. So this, I think, is the first time that they really said, okay, we have a, a hero here who, because of his age in the context of the story, you're able to believe it and not hold it against him if he is more like emotional than other characters would be in similar circumstances. And I just thought that was brilliant. You know, he sold it completely 
in that scene, and I mean the entire film. And so much of what we assume to be common wisdom, even when it's wrong, was avoided in this film. There's no real love interest. You know, there's no uh, romance plot. There is someone that Peter's interested in, but it's not Kristen Dunst and the Upside Down Kiss, right? Yeah. This sort of long, protracted thing from the start of the movie to the end that it's just like, would you get to the point already? It's not here. This movie is busy establishing this character as a wisecracking, fun, energetic superhero who has a social circle, right? You know, also credit to the fact that they managed to finally give him peers who were interesting, like the guy in the chair, Ned. I don't know if that's meant to be Ned Leeds or if it's meant to be Kong from Ultimate Spider-Man. I think, I no, it's Ganke from Ultimate Spider-Man, but with the Ned name. Oh, so I didn't read that. I don't know who Ganke is. Yeah, I, he's the friend of Miles Morales. Oh, okay. I, but they did a lot of swapping of names. And again, there is a reveal towards the end of the movie, which is a bit like, uh, wh- why? It's, 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 <laughs> it's less of a, oh, it's more like a, why would you do that? And I've said it before, if you have a problem about them swapping the races of a 60-year-old character to make it a bit more inclusive, well, you're wrong. You are wrong. If you have a problem, at least in this movie, is an African-American woman, you are wrong. And really, I don't need to argue with you. You are demonstrably wrong. I mean, one of the comments that uh, I've heard other podcasters say about it is, you know, when Peter is at school and, you know, there's Liz and Ned and uh, uh, Michelle and, you know, all of these characters, even Flash is American Indian. Uh, I think the actor Tony Revolvolari is of Hispanic descent, though I might be wrong. By the way, I saw him in the Grand Budapest Hotel three years ago when he was like, <laughs> a young one. He, he did not grow old in a day, and teenagers are supposed to grow up. What, what the hell? <laughs> the entire supporting cast was excellent, by the way. It felt... You've talked about uh, locking a house with Allen, but all of the... Teenagers playing kids works. Laura uh, Harrier, who did play uh, Liz, the love interest, she was a bit... She looked like an adult. It sort of worked in the movie because everybody commented, oh, Peter Parker is trying to hit up on a girl, like, out of his league and, like, two years older than him. No, but also she dresses like an adult because that's her characterization, right? And she she says, like, she's all interested in, like, this decathlon. One of the faults I will have in this movie is, again, there are a few because nothing nothing is perfect, is that she felt a bit like Ramona Flowers to me, which is to say she was his love interest because she's this inspiring love interest and she symbolizes something. And whatever there is to the character, I think the actress brings and not the script, really. The script doesn't give her a lot of time. I felt I know, in terms of script writing, more about this version of Flash Thompson, who got like 10 lines than I did about her, which is a fault. Well, no, I don't know if I agree with that, because the whole thing with Ramona Flowers is she exists to be Scott's love interest, right? Like, there's all of that stuff going on with the ex-boyfriends. and But the thing about Liz is the reason that he's attracted to her is because... He thinks she's beautiful and she's intellectual, right? Like she would be in another Spider-Man film. She could conceivably be a love interest, but it's also not, she's not his soulmate. You know what I mean? He never goes out of his way to be like, you know, oh, she's the love of my life, whatever. He asks her out to dance. 
That's like the the extent of how far this alleged romantic relationship is meant to go. I really wanted a bit more of her in general. Because I think, again, without spoiling everything, it would give the last third of the movie a stronger edge to it. I think they just didn't want to play that. You know what I mean? It, it's such a predictable thing. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, good movie. Highly recommended. As far as I'm concerned, so far the best comic book movie of 2017. Unchallenged. I like it more than Logan. And again, it's, if you like Logan, it's your problem. <laughs> and you're, you're wrong. Like, if you like Logan more. Hey, hey, I'll fight you on Logan. Don't start with that. No, but I, I will say, like, this film, looking back on not just 2017, but on, like, what the trends have been until now, I think this film should be held up as a standard of if you want to introduce characters, this is probably how you should do it. Be light. Don't get dragged down by backstory and origin. It's okay. We don't need to know. You don't necessarily need to have a central romance. You don't have to have... The thing with Michael Keaton is, you're right, he's a very deceptive villain, but he's also a memorable villain. And part of that is Keaton himself, right? He crackles in his scenes with Holland and with the other characters like you know he's he's a brilliant actor also movie don't tease me with a shocker and then use him for two scenes that, <laughs> uh, that's just no I'm sorry that's just mean they've misused the shocker they misused the, the mad tinkerer as well the mad tinkerer was in this movie that, that was supposed to be their tech like the gang's tech guy that was oh my be god him. see see okay. it's misused they they sort of build him up and then he disappears in the last act Well, I thought they were building that up to the Sinister Six then, because you get Matt Gargan. Uh, okay. I think we'll move on into a different story. And speaking of movies, with a lot of writers, Sean, are you familiar with this character called The Batman? The Batman? No, I know Batman. Well, Batman's director, Matt Reeves, has dropped Ben Affleck's script for the upcoming solo Batman movie. <laughs> That's a proper cackling. <laughs> oh uh, my god, are you kidding me? Via uh, The Hollywood Reporter, so it's as legit, I guess, as these type of news ever <laughs> go. Uh, Reeves has decided that the Jeff Johns, Ben Affleck's Chris Stereo script is dropped, which might mean that their idea of using Deathstroke as a villain is dropped, and they already hired the actor, so who knows? Oh my god, this train wreck never ends, Tom. It's like watching a slinky go down the stairs. Uh, I don't no, understand. No, no. <laughs> We've just talked about Marvel movies and how they have dozens of writers and rewrites and how Ant-Man changed hands uh, like two weeks before the shooting has begun. But yeah, it is. No, but Marvel has precedence. That's the whole thing. It would have been legit to say, you know, we can be skeptical about Ant-Man because of all of the problems and then Ant-Man proves us wrong. When has a DC movie with this kind of problem ever proven us wrong? What was the last one that had? The Suicide Squad. Well, no, no, no. There were, there were the same rumors about Wonder Woman and we didn't like it, but other people did. Like Wonder Woman is well liked and there was a lot of problems according to rumors and whatnot. During the shooting and doing the editing, and they were talking about taking it from the director, but it, Wonder Woman worked. So right now, DC is riding pretty high in terms of public affection, in terms of 
Um, well, in terms of money making, they're always writing high. Even the movies that we didn't like made tons of money. Yeah. The problem with Wonder Woman, and I don't want to relit it, like open that up again, but the whole thing with Wonder Woman is let's stipulate and say, you know, you and I have our issues with it, but it is overall a movie that people enjoy and then a movie that mostly holds together. It's one movie. The DCU trend does not fit that mold. And now, <laughs> no script for Batman. For Batman of all characters. I will say, uh, Matt Reeves is a good director. He did uh, the first Planet of the Apes remake. And then now he just... He did the third film. And the second film was someone else. And I just watched it. And it's... I didn't like it because the end really dragged on for me. But it was such a fascinating idea of... This modern blockbuster, which probably cost $150 million upwards because all of the CGI. And this it's a near-silent movie filled with monkeys talking sign language about, you know, wanting to live alone and uprooting humanity and war and extremism. You don't expect it from a modern-day blockbuster. So if he wants to do something else, if Matt Reeves want to take over, I'm for it as a rule. It's just that, yeah, looking at it in terms of what happened to the idea of a Batman movie, it's a bit of a train wreck because since we've talked Spider-Man, Spider-Man felt like a movie someone wanted to make. Obviously, you know, that somebody is the studios who wanted to make a lot of money. But in terms of the story it tells, it felt like somebody wanted to tell this type of story with this character that way. Batman at this point really feels like Nobody wants to do it. If Ben Affleck could, he would go back in time and unsign his name on that script. He only did it so that Warner would finance his gangster movies. And then the movie came out and flopped. You don't even remember what the name of the Ben Affleck movie that came out this year, right? It came out and it disappeared after two weeks. So he basically signed his name and was contractually obligated to Warner for the next seven years or so for a movie that didn't work for him. So if he could, he would undo it. And, you know, the script has changed and the directors has changed. And as Bob Chipman said, I didn't know up until today, it's possible to feel sorry for a guy who gets millions of dollars in order to flirt with Gal Gadot on stream. But I do. <laughs> like, he so obviously doesn't want to be there. He prays. He's probably right now begging for whoever does the Justice League movie reshoots uh, Joss Whedon. Please kill Batman. Like, like I, why, did, they, they, why did Superman they, get to die instead they, of me? They would have expected. Kill the bat. Kill the bat. And then they can make a Nightwing movie. And like, Ben, I don't think they will. No, 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 no. Hear, hear me out. And the audience are going to love it. The audience are going to love it. Uh, tell them Batman fell through a portal and he became a completely different actor. He had to go home to his home planet. <laughs> the Zor Zorana, right? <laughs> If the Justice League movie does introduce the Batman of Zur and R, I just might give it a perfect rating, regardless of anything else. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you hire Jeff Johns instead of Graham Morrison as your head writer. Let me ask you something, though, Tom. You know a hell of a lot more about Batman and about Ben Affleck's film career than I do. What do you think Affleck put into that script that was so objectionable that Reed shut it down? I don't like, I wouldn't guess, because um, I don't, uh, Ben Affleck is a pretty good director, uh, Gone Baby Gone is a really good film, but it's not a story by him, and maybe he wrote the script, but the story is based on a book, same thing with Argo, 
And then the, his solo movie, Live by Night, just disappeared. So it's possible he just, he's a very good director and he knows how to work with actors who are not Ben Affleck. And he has this old, because Ben Affleck is not, he's a, he's a good director, he's not the world's greatest actor. And he knows how to work with well-known actors or even little-known actors and, you know, slot them into roles and do the film right. Right, but we're talking here about something, I don't know if it's unprecedented per se, but when you oh, think no, about no, it, no, like... De no, definitely not unprecedented. There are a lot of precedents. What would have caused, like, what was the script? Because you have to figure that Reeves also initiated, like, he rejected that script with Warner Brothers okay, presumably. Right? This is not a situation where he's working on his own. Ultimately, these directors and these actors, they all answer to the WB. Well, it's not just a Ben Affleck script, right? Because Affleck worked with uh, Jeff Johnson, Chris Terrio. So it's possibly Matt Reeves looked and said, why does Batman lose his arm halfway through? Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> Somebody got their arm ripped off. We're not here for that. We don't want it. No, thank you. And again, these things happen more and more as movies become uh, big of blockbusters become more and more a controlled product. Big blockbusters are basically machine today. And the idea of the auteur director coming in and making his movie in terms of big blockbusters seems more and more a thing of the past. Unless you're Zack Snyder, oddly enough. This is the thing. I have to wonder, because... We have always characterized Marvel and DC as companies that are not necessarily in touch with what the smart play is in a consistent way, right? Like, they make these stupid decisions, and we find ourselves sort of, why did you not see that? And I have to wonder if the presence of these directors, what it actually means, is that they are able to make certain creative choices... And the studio allows them to follow through with it when they would not have thought of it on their own. I have to wonder if that's part of it. Because, you know, there were many things in Homecoming that I cannot see someone like Dan Slott thinking of, right? It would have gone against the grain for him. How much credit was Patty Jenkins given for coming up with, like, atypical scenarios for Wonder Woman to include when... Any other, if it had, ugh, God forbid, but if it had been a male director, you don't necessarily know that it would have gone that far in terms of what she was allowed to do. So I think, I don't know if it's necessarily true that they're just machines and it doesn't really matter who you put in the driver's seat. Because clearly, some of these directors are able to make decisions that Marvel and DC, it's, I cannot believe that they would ever have come up with these things on their own. They're not that intuitive. They would always, like, we've characterized them as always playing it safe, right? They would always go for the most obvious thing. The, the thing that they think is a sure win over taking any kind of creative risk. Oh, definitely. And I think that, not to spoil Homecoming excessively, but the, the ending of that movie does something that no Spider-Man movie had ever done, and that I cannot believe would ever have been done in other circumstances. In fact, come to think of it, I don't know if this has ever... Let me just say it. Spoiler, okay? Next 30 seconds, spoiler for the Spider-Man. Next 30 seconds is a spoiler. So, Aunt May finds out that he's Spider-Man. 
To the best of my knowledge, thinking back, like, this might have happened in the Japanese Spider-Man, but all the other versions don't have that, right? They don't let May in on the big secret. And John Watts did. Well, the script writers did. We don't know how much who decided what. There's like, a little like I, agency like I said, there, there's the general rule, and then there's the exceptions to the rule, that therefore it's not really a rule. But overall, uh, when it comes to those big budget, huge productions, which are now always part of a series or a universe, there is going to be a lot of the studio moving behind the scene and forcing the director's hand. That's why they take a lot of younger directors nowadays, because if you take someone like Steven Spielberg and you tell him, you'll do it our way, Steven Spielberg says, no. I feel like you might be being a little charitable for the older school directors, though. Let's not forget, Steven Spielberg did Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I understand the mentality of you can't necessarily push around big-name directors, but the flip side of that equation, I think, is that you can't expect... You can't tell them no when they have a stupid idea, yeah. Exactly. You can't be flexible with them. Whoever stopped George Lucas from doing something stupid? Nobody. So there might be some benefit in the idea of, like, I'm not taking the corporation side here. I'm just saying, like, it's probably best not to work with the big ego, big name directors because they may not even understand what it is that they're meant to do. Okay, I think we'll move on to the next bit of news. Let's. So, moving on from movie to TV, Netflix has announced, Netflix has been on fire lately. Oh my god, turn it off, Sean, oh my god, they're burning! (laughs) No, they're burning hot and they're burning long. Uh, I mean, have you seen, like, Castlevania Glow, all this stuff that's been coming out? I have seen Glow. I have seen Castlevania. And I need to ask you, Sean. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Why, why Castlevania? Why? Warren Ellis, I like you. Why? Why? Why does he spend two episodes talking, 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 <laughs> and never actually whipping anybody with his weep? Because it's a Warren Ellis book, Tom. No, that's no, why. No, no. No, Warren Ellis, if nothing else, likes to have shit blow up proper. He likes to do long, torturous action scenes. He did the authority. He likes it. But this animation for Castlevania is bad. Like, it's boring designs and nobody moves. And there's weightlessness to it all. And overall, Netflix is very good in live action. Their animation's effort, other than Bojack Horseman, which is a comedy, are painful for me to watch. But Umbrella Academy is a live-action uh, TV series. And by the way, there is an Umbrella Academy live-action TV series. This is based on a two uh, six-issue series written by Jared Way and Gabriel Ba, which came up via Dark Horse uh, five, six years ago? No, even more, seven years ago. The first Umbrella Academy miniseries. And the big idea of it, if you haven't read it, and by the way, you should read it because those are two very good series and it's drawn by Gabriel Basso. They look amazing! Is that the Umbrella Academy is this group of kids who all have superpowers and they're forced to being a bunch of, you know, cute school-age-looking superheroes by their cruel headmaster. And then there's a lot of time jumps and we discover that in the future things have gone very, very wrong. And... When this was just came out, everybody that noted that it was written by, you know, famous emo singer-songwriter Jared Way were like, oh, it's going to be this boring series about teenage disappointment. And then the first image is a wrestler doing a elbow drop on a giant squid. And then everybody smiled. Oh, it's the good kind of comics. 
It's the fun kind of comics. And then everybody remembered, oh yeah, Jared Way is the guy who wanted to work in comics and then couldn't manage it as an internet marvel, so he became an international rock star simply that they would let him back in. It, it, it's almost like this story about uh, the British Prime Minister uh, Disraeli that wanted to be in politics, but he couldn't afford it, so he became a best-selling author simply to finance his becoming a politician. <laughs> so Jared Way started up a band sold tens of millions of records, become an icon for millions of screaming teenagers, simply so they can come back to DC and say, let me write a comic book. And they did. And they did. Like, Sean, maybe we should start a band. If you want to do a comic, then me. Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, we'll start it right now. I'll, I still know how to play the triangle. <laughs> I'm on drums. I'm good. Uh, so, so yeah, a 10 episode format, live action Umbrella Academy. It's an interesting possibility. I have some reservations about the live action angle only because assuming that they're adapting like the, the books themselves, there's some pretty crazy imagery there. Oh yeah. We're in the post Stranger Things world, Sean. Well, yeah, but Stranger Things didn't have a sentient monkey. Although I guess War of the Planets does. Well, it had some very strange things in it. I would assume they wouldn't do the Eiffel Tower scene. But then why would you do Umbrella Academy if you're not going to do the Eiffel Tower scene, right? Well, they're probably going to put it in the background. Because unless they have a Game of Thrones bondage for this TV show, which they might. Netflix has a lot of money. Uh, like I said, usually I would prefer to be an animation on principle because... It is a story made for comic and therefore made to be animated without the limitations of live action actors. But the problem is Netflix original animation tended to be not good. Um, well, I do disagree with you about the merits of Castlevania, but that's a different podcast and a conversation that I have already had this week. So we can skip that. But I do think like it really depends on the studio that they go with, right? If this had been animation, like they could have given this to Studio Mir who did uh, Legend of Korra, and that would have looked just fine. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. So, Legend of Korra is a very faulty show, but it looked great. Yeah, so it really does come down to, like, who do you go with? And I'm assuming that Netflix doesn't have an in-house animation studio, so each time it's somebody else, right? But they're going with live action. Uh, there's no news on the cast yet, but uh, I'm hoping for the best. Like, I really enjoyed Umbrella Academy. It was one of the rare instances he said egotistically, uh, that I had to say mea culpa. Because like you said, someone's like, the lead singer of My Chemical Romance is writing a comic. I'm like, well, here we go. And it ended up being really, really good. Well, so, Sean, you also like Max Bemis. So I think as a rule, you like comic made by rock and roll folk. And yet I couldn't stand Kiss versus Vampirella. Well, it's, it's a movie about rock and roll band. It's not a movie written by any, like Christopher Sabella, as far as I know, is not a rock and roller. Uh, you also likes the work of Charles Soleil every once in a while, <laughs> and he also has a band, and he's also a lawyer and a writer and apparently a full-on superhero in his two minutes off time. Now, Sean, I think now that we've established this rule, uh, you need to go back and reread the lead singer. Slayer Repentless? No, 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 because it's also not written by band people, it's written by comic people about a band. Uh, Scott Ian from Anthrax did a Lobo mini series, and I think now oh, no. you need to look it out. Because, again, there's a rule. You like them, you'll probably like it. I'll save that for the anniversary episode. <laughs> 
Uh, one last bit of Netflix news. So Netflix has announced that Lucy Liu will be directing the season two premiere of Luke Cage. Uh, Lucy Liu, of course, famous actress, Charlie's Angels, Ally McBeal, uh, most recently on Elementary as Joan Watson, and she has directed a few episodes there, so she's not inexperienced. It's an interesting choice, presumably going to be post-Defenders, so it might be interesting checking back in and seeing where everyone is after that. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay, uh, so that's uh, non-comic stuff tangentially related to comics. Shall we move on to actual comics comics? Yeah, considering that the only comics news I had was, like, lenticular covers for Marvel Legacy, I'm like, kiss my ass. Uh, have you seen the amazing 2014 Excel Alonso interview when DC yeah. had their lenticular covers? And he said, oh, lenticular covers are a terrible idea, especially when you announce the lenticular covers without announcing creative team first. Because it seems like if he's basically, he's, he's time travel warning himself. Now, hang on, Tom. I, I'm... I'm a little shaken here. Are you telling me that Axel Alonso is a hypocrite? No, I can't believe it. I shan't believe it. Come on. So the guy's full of hot air. Comics, let's Comics. do it. Let's, uh, Sacred Creatures number one. We both read that one, so let's start with this, right? Yeah. It's written by uh, Pablo Raimondi and Klaus Jensen. I do believe this is his first A, written comics, and B, comics outside of the big two. At least the first one that I know of, because Klaus Jensen's career goes decades. An amazing artist, inker, what have you. Um, and uh, Pablo Raimondi also does the art with coloring by Chris Chakri, and it's an image comic. It certainly is. Uh, well, it certainly is an image comic if the year was 1998. Ish. I'd maybe go a little bit earlier. No, no, it's like, it's like, this is, uh, if you want a one line catch up, this is Sandman, if this was done by Image circa 98, 96, maybe. Like, after the terrible years, but before they got really good. Right. Yeah, I can see that actually. Uh, because you remember, you remember when Rob Liefeld, all he did was, what if the Hulk, but purple? Uh, what if Wolverine, but shorter? So this is, what if Sandman, but not? What if Sandman, but the Endless are evil? And not as interesting. So, okay, we have here, we've got this family of supernatural beings. They're uh, demons, or gods, or new gods, or the Endless, or the clandestine, or whatever. Not the clandestine. Oh my god! And, and for and for reasons that's that's a deep cut for you, old Marvel And for reasons reserved uh, for people who will stay on for issue two onward, this family has decided to focus on some loser guy named Josh, and he has a pregnant girlfriend. And of course, the mom hates him because uh, that's what moms do in this type of story. They hate the guy, and so he has no job and no prospects. And so this magical family. Start setting him in a bunch of uh, missions, and there are time jobs, and then there are evil cats, and there's there's more time jobs, and then the end. And so, for reasons reserved to people who will stay on from issue two onwards, this magical family had decided to focus on some loser guy named Josh, who has a pregnant girlfriend, and the mom of the girlfriend hates him because that's what moms do in this type of story, and he has no job and no prospects, and... Various members of this family start to sending him on all sorts of errands and like point his direction to some way. And then there's this super powered priest. 
and evil cats and time jumps. There's a lot of time jumps throughout this issue. Uh, the good thing, this is one of those giant size number ones. So it's 68 pages of story and it's very meaty in terms of nobody will be able to tell you after reading this first issue, well, you've got to wait for issue two to decide if you like it or not. I've reached the end of this issue and I don't like it. And I've read enough to know why I don't like it and why I'm not interested in coming back. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've always said about Image in terms of this being a very, very smart strategy for them to have an oversized first issue that has enough space for the reader to be like, you know what? I can make a decision based on this issue. Well, it's not a smart decision in this case because if they did the first short issue, I might have just been curious enough based on Klaus Jensen's name alone to come back for issue two if this was a 22-pager. But because it's 68... <laughs> like, it's smart decision if the comic is good. No, I think it's a pro-consumer decision. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's always a pro-consumer decision, which is great. I'm saying in terms of this particular issue, and I'm sad to say it because I, w- I wanted to at least enjoy it. Klaus Jensen, one of those rare comic book people I've met in person, and he's like a nice guy and a gentleman's gentleman. It's really sad to me to have to say that this first writing effort by him is just, it's a drag comic. It's, it's not the worst thing ever. It's just, it's not, not good. I don't care about Josh and all this family's evil machinations. I don't care about them. And the chime jumps are supposed to make me interested. Oh, how they reach this thing. And instead of saying, you're jumping so much that I don't have any time in the 68 pages to focus on anything. Like, where am I in relation to those characters? Why should I care about? And again, I don't care about Josh. That's the big one, I think. I think that is where everything went wrong. Because what happens is... Like, you have this family that is manipulating Josh, and every time he encounters one of them, he gets sicker and sicker, and they sort of tear apart his life just for the hell of it, one step at a time. And he's just caught in this down spiral. But the problem is, because he doesn't have any real agency, because he's essentially just being pinballed around by these demons like something out of the Book of Job, he isn't a a compelling protagonist, right? He can't effectively fight what they're doing to him it's not particularly original what they're doing to him so and they're not doing it to him out of any kind of higher principle just lol look at the human right so you're watching them torture this guy and if he were an unpleasant person or if you know if he had it coming you would at least have a sense of schadenfreude but you never you know the mom's hatred of him initially doesn't make any sense like, you know, she he doesn't seem like someone that she would object to, except that, of course, that's what mothers-in-law do, right? And then his his girlfriend shows up, or his wife, I guess, I forget what their exact relationship is. Girlfriend, shows up, girlfriend. Girlfriend shows up at his house. His apartment has been trashed. He's obviously, like, in distress, black veins sticking out of his face, red-rimmed eyes. And the first thing she says is, oh, my God, how could you be this drunk? What's wrong with you? And then she basically, she leaves him. So it's like, it's not a believable relationship. It's not a believable environment. His struggles are completely irrelevant because he is just a pawn and nothing more. You said like imitation Sandman, right? With Sandman, even bit characters have a bit of depth to them so that they could be manipulated by desire or by despair or by anybody the the best issues of sandman for my money were not the big myth art storylines it were the single issues where 
there's just one guy or girl or cat or what have you, and the endless figure out into a story on the offside, and they sort of dictate what he does. And it seems like they're wanting to do something like this here, but it doesn't work because the family is just like generic council of omnisness. They appear and what do they do? What's their personality? There's this one that looks like a kid. Is, does he act like a kid? No, he does not. And the names are confusing and you never know who they're talking about at any given point. Designs are boring and there's one scene that's painful where uh, their version of desire, I guess, Makes him fall in love and and betray oh his girlfriend. Oh my god, Trump. that was so offensive. The, the most horrible thing is not that he has sex with a foreign person who's not his girlfriend. Is that she's fat, Sean? Oh no, the indignity. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like because he's skinny and like sort of kind of generically good-looking all-American guy, maybe. And she's fat, Sean. And that's the worst thing of all, isn't it? It is. What a nightmare. How could he stop from killing himself afterwards? By the way, that kind of uncomfortable thing is going to be a trend during this review, so... Uh, the art's not really good also. Like, the character models are fine. Like I said, it's not a very uh, interesting design choices, but the characters themselves look good, and the rendering is okay. It's just the backgrounds, half the time... I don't think the characters seem to fit on their background very well. It seems like he drawn the characters and then he fitted them onto the backgrounds without much consideration. The scene in the park specifically, it looked like he was traced from a photo or something. And I just don't believe that these two characters are in the same plane. You remember there was this phase in the early 2000s when CGI became a thing. And yeah. they would still do traditional animation movies, but they would use CGI for backgrounds and creatures to save time and money, and you would have, you know, 2D and 3D on the same plane. It just looked wrong. So, like I said, it's it's a bad comic. It's not the worst. I don't want to be hyperbolic. It's not the worst comic ever, aside from that, again, that one scene, which is just kind of offensive and stupid. It's just, it's boring. I don't care about the characters, the art perfunctory, and nothing more. I wouldn't call it necessarily bad. I'd say more like ineffective in that I can see what it's trying to do and maybe a more experienced writer would have given enough nuance to the family so that their manipulations of Josh would at least be like, if, is there some dark amusement to it or, or something like that? Or give Josh some ability to resist or to exert himself in some way so that there is a struggle, so that this conflict isn't so completely one-sided. I mean, for contrast sake, and this is something that you've encountered recently, look at the Romanovs in Nikolai Dante. You have a family where every single one of them is completely different. They have their own personalities, their own characterizations. They all work with the main character in different ways. And this story doesn't really have that. I think if it had, it might have been a more compelling start. But, you know, I can wish Jansen luck. I'm not sticking around for more. Yeah, okay. Uh, since we've talked about comic, in which... Uh supernatural beings interfere with the life of normal people and it wasn't very good i want to talk about one that does it actually pretty well go for it i'm going to talk about claudia and rex number one written by ulysses farinas and Eric ferreiras who are inseparable i think they always work together 
<laughs> and you never see them together in the same room. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't follow up on pictures. And it's drawn by uh, Daniel Iraziri, who I've never heard of before. And it's published by Roar, which is a subdivision of Lionforge. It's like their young adult uh, imprint, sort of like their kaboom for their boom, I would say. And it's a free issue mini. And the idea is this. There is the realm of the gods. Like there are many, many gods and they all serve aspects of uh, various things of humanity. The gods of dreams and the god of death and the gods of sleep. And I think simply based on design, I don't know enough about the mythology that they're aiming for Aztec mythology because the god of death, uh, Thanatos, is this you know, smiling skeleton guy with a bubble around his head. And what happens here is this this force, this foreign force that wants to be the one god. And it sets out to kill all the other gods and take over as this one being to rule above them all, right? There's not going to be many gods, there's just going to be the one. And three gods, the god of death, the god of sleep, and the goddess of Sorry, I don't seem to remember exactly what she stood for. They escape for the moral world realm. And at the same time, you have this sort of post-Spielbergian family on the move. You have the mother. Uh, you have the two daughters. One of them is entering into a teenager. She's just very sulky, like, oh, you don't understand me. And one of them is very young and hyper-emotional. And, oh, oh, what's this? What's this? And the father died. And so they're moving. And they collide with the with the gods, like with the gods who are on the run from Earth. And their lives intertwine, and then action. Hmm, sounds intriguing. Yeah, now what's... The first issue is very much like work your way to this basic setup, because the story proper seems to begin when they meet, and this only happens towards the end of the issue. But because it's a three-issue mini... I'm happy because it wouldn't be one of those, okay, wait for the first arc over before we even start the plot proper. And I I really like the characters. Like, I really like... I like the gods more than like the human uh, family, which, like I said, is a bit post-Spielberg, post-J.J. Abrams, you know. Oh, what our life shall become now. And we have the drama. We don't want to do the drama. And we fight all the time, but we really like each other type thing. Which is... It's done well enough. And it's important, I think, that it's uh, all an all-female cast here. But the gods inherently are more interesting to me. And the way they escape, and it's important to them to survive. And they're not they're not the good gods. They don't they're unprofitted like, oh, we must care for humanity and shape their way. They just they just want to survive. They just want to live and start and restart their realm again. And the art's very, very good. Like I said, I don't know who uh, Irazari is. I don't even know if it's a man or a woman, Daniel Irizarry, I guess it's a guy. But, you know, the designs are very striking and the color palette is super nice. Like, it's it's sort of darkish hues when you're in the realm of the gods and then you go to the human world and it's getting more of a purplish hue. So everything looks good. All the designs work and the characters work. And this is a good number one. It's not a great number one. Because it, there isn't something inherently new to it. It's very much used ideas, as it were. But it's used ideas done well in a striking manner. And when you care about what's going to happen to the characters, and when they look good, because it's a comic, they should look good, 
you're interested and you want to go back for more. I want to know what will happen to these to this family. But you're sticking around for the rest. Is this a three issue mini? Yeah. And again, I like that it's a three issue mini. I like the story is sure. is short and to the point. Uh, you didn't really like it, but it reminded me a bit of a more children aimed version of uh, Vinarama Rama, the Grand Morgan. Vinarama. Yeah, which yeah. You, you didn't like. So for you, it's not a stalling point, I would say. But there is something to that idea of the way the gods interact with the human world. Mm-hmm. That's that. So yeah, I might look into it. It sounds potentially intriguing. You know, Vimanarama was Grant Morrison being a coke addict again. So Hey, hey, great. LSD, uh, oh, LSD. Whatever, whatever. So uh, I read Diablo House Number 1 by Ted Adams and Santi Perez from IDW. Ted Adams, who is IDW, I believe, I think is the publisher or one of the founders. That explains so much, Tom. Okay. So much. Because it's super good and he knows comics and therefore it's the greatest comic I ever. guess after, like, they tried this with Tales from the Dark Side, right? They, they have all sorts of horror shots. I think they do the reprints of uh, Creepy and the Eerie. Yeah, yeah. And they decided to start, like, a new horror anthology called Diablo House. And here's the thing. Your opinion of this book will depend entirely on how charitable you want to be regarding what Adams and Santi Perez are trying to do versus what they actually do. The setup of the story is that the narrator is a man named Riley, who's the host of a popular tourist attraction called Diablo House. This is this big, like, haunted mansion, whatever. And uh, within, you can find someone who will make a deal in exchange for your soul. It's basically the Crypt Keeper's Mansion, right? Like, he's telling, Riley is telling you, the reader, these short horror stories about the people who came to the house and made all these deals. Now, the story in this issue is about a man who runs a fish restaurant. His wife convinces him to screw over his business partner in order to get rich. They get even more rich. The wife's greed tears them apart. And the guy's luck turns on a dime. Everything goes bad. Uh, his last words before he dies are, and I quote, I did everything I could to make as much money as possible, but I never enjoyed life. Just so you know, Tom, I'm going to put the The More You Know theme song here <laughs> in the background while I quote that because what a load of crock, right? He dies. The wife, who's in the middle of having a threesome with two male prostitutes, essentially gets screwed to death, and her soul is dragged to hell because she sold it at Diablo House in order to gain her husband's success. He's dead, her time is up, now she'll spend eternity being buried in dollar bills until she suffocates over and over again. So, what's the Uncle Creepy's version of... What's the terrible pun that ends this issue? There has to be a terrible pun if you're doing this terrible, oh, ironic people pay for their destiny type thing. They wish that they had John Kassir to give some kind of, like, clever one-liner at the very end. Not so much here. The last thing that Riley says in the issue is... He prayed for money, but now he will pray for salvation. (laughs) What is it you want in life? Money, power, time, love. Let me know if I can help. I always have a room open. Yeah. So, here's the thing. This is, like, the big issue that I have with this comic. Obviously, it's a riff on, you said it, Tales from the Crypt's early years, which basically used horror stories as kind of these macabre morality plays, right? People were always punished for sins that they committed. 
on that level and that level alone, Diablo House colors within the lines, right? It does that story to a T as it's written. However, this story is also sexist as hell, pun intended. Note that the woman in this story is punished at the end of it, but her husband, who let's not forget cheated his partner out of his rightful shares, has a come-to-Jesus moment. It's the woman who's endlessly greedy and also a slut because she needs not one but two gigolos, which is going to be this episode title. It's all set up to punish her, right? The whole point of the story is it's her greed. His is just sort of, well, he gets away with it. And it doesn't even make any sense when you think about it, because the man who ultimately reaps her soul and is like, okay, you know, your contract is up, whatever. He's like, the deal was that her husband's fortunes would change while he was alive. Now that he's dead, your time's up. But his fortunes were going sour for years. That's the whole reason she ends up leaving him. At some point, things just sort of take a turn and nothing he does works out. And it just gets worse and worse and worse for him until he dies. So... The house didn't even keep up its end of the bargain. Oh, that's just... Tales from the Crypt would have at least been intelligent enough and had the woman murder him for the money and then forfeit her soul and then it's her fault, right? Here it's like he he's essentially cursed at some point and nothing ever comes of that. That's not a reason to like violate the end of the bargain. Between these uh, and uh, sacred creatures are like dudes. Dudes writing comics. You know, women exist. <laughs> it's like uh the Juno Diaz uh, line uh he had like a full I think raging article about it about how guys just don't know to write women because they like 99% of male writers just can't write outside of their own head and women inherently because they uh are born into a very patriarchal society are forced to accept the fact that there is a male point of view and therefore women are much better at writing men than men are writing women And, you know, guys just can't get out of it. Uh, If we want to talk about someone who can get out of it, and indeed write women as women do, uh, Kim and Kim, Love is a Battlefield number one, uh, written by Magdalena Max Visaggio, with art by Eva Cabrera and Claudia Aguirre, published by Black Mass Comics. This is the first in a four-issue miniseries, which is itself a sequel to the Eisner-nominated Kim and Kim, which we reviewed the first issue, yes? I remember enjoying the first series well enough, though the ending of it was really, really rushed. You remember? They did three issues on one plot, and then the fourth issue suddenly jumped to basically, oh, that plot was over in between the issues. We drew something else now. So what we're doing here is this. The two Kims are in a new dimension, like the, the hottest, highest, most expensive dimension there is, and it's the, you know, it's the most expensive city, and they're on their hunt for their big pay score, right? There's this MacGuffin, and if they find it and they bring it in, they are set up for life. And they actually do it. In the first four pages, it seems everything is going fine, and they decide to go to this party in a club. And we have this high melodrama stuff when King D uh, made an old girlfriend of her. And like, you left me, but I had to leave you, and now are you back to me? And slowly but surely, as the club scene go on, we get this really big emotional payoff. And the end is really quite of a gut punch in terms of how the characters work. I really, really liked uh, Love is a Battlefield number one. Visaggio really nailed, I think, what makes these characters work in 
like they are super into action they always on the move but they want to enjoy life a bit they want to have a restful moment especially Kim D but they just can't because there's always this trauma around them and the the relationships does feel it's earnest in a good way it's lovely and painful kind of way but uh same problem I have with the original miniseries Eva Cabrera's art is not bad like it's far from bad and it's really good again on the download stuff on the character character relations I still don't think she sells the idea that these people are like interdimensional bounty hunters that go through those all those crazy worlds <laughs> because it's just they're going to this club which is the best club in the best city in the best dimension right it should be superbly amazing I, we've talked about Ulysses Farinas before I've talked I'm thinking about he would construct a scene in such a club and filled every single you know panel with thousands of amazing aliens in the background and here's just like just a club right and they might as well have been in a you know a regular club in Los Angeles as far as I'm concerned so I think the high concept of them is interdimensional bounty hunters not just regular bounty hunters in the future but like Super high-flying, magic-wielding, guitar-using, lasers, you know, van that drives through space and time. They just don't have the art to sell the high-octane part. Yeah, but I think that at the same time, the more cartoonish aspect gives it a bit more charm than it would otherwise have. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm just saying. We, we've talked about when we've talked about the original series. There is this thing that I was looking for when the series was first announced and they say, oh, it's a bit like Tang Girl. It's like Tang Girl inspired in the craziness. And there's the thing that I've got, which is actually for all the blow-ups and all the gags and, you know, the pink Uzis, it's more of a personal story. It's more of their life, love's lost and love found. And I follow Visaji on Twitter and she does talk about how much she likes Saga. And it is a bit like this. Again, not in the same level, and because it's not a continuing story, she still doesn't have the Brian K. Vaughn's knack for ending every issue with, oh, oh, it's this moment, and I have to follow up to the next issue to see what's going on here. But you do see, the again, the emotional earnestness and the desire to present to characters who feel stuff and never to be distant from them. There is no ironic distancing here in anything she does, even though it's a crazy uh, sci-fi action book so I do see that uh, and I do think it's the series main source of power uh, but Eva Cabrera with all the goodwill in the world she's not Fiona Staples yet right because Saga we get all those crazy visuals right the dragon the giant space babies you actually sell this idea of it's this massive universe where everything can happen and with Kim and Kim so far, it's this massive universe where the same thing that happens in Earth happens. But the criticism is more about what I want than I think what this issue preserves. And uh, Kim and Kim Love is a Battlefield number one is a good issue. And it's, you know, it's a pretty decent jumping on point. They don't, you don't really need to know anything about these characters other than what they tell you throughout the issue. You could just start with that, just as you started with Kim and Kim number one. I think so. Yeah, there was a lot to. I mean, my my problem with Kim and Kim was that at some point the pretense of emotional depth didn't quite carry through to the end because I think Visagio was sort of caught in this really weird interstitial place where, on the one hand, she wants this to be a sort of fun, adventurous, crazy sort of thing, but then that runs the risk of 
playing too shallow, right? Yeah, it's like one kin pulls one direction and then the other kin pulls to the other direction. And hopefully you will find the middle, but it's very hard to do it. I mean, she didn't find it by the end of the first volume, so I think that at this point... I, I, I want to sit of... down and reread the first volume, like, to see if it works better. Have you read it as a... Like, have you waited for the collected edition and then read it in one go, or did you read it issue by issue? No, I read it monthly. So I read it monthly as well, and there was a bit of a delay there, so maybe because there was both a delay and because the story seemed to swerve, it would work better when you just sit down and read it in one go and you can see, oh, that's what she was doing, maybe. Maybe I'm being too charitable here. So I do think this issue works a lot better in terms of the emotional drama because Kim's D, a former love interest, come to her life, you think it's going to be one thing. And then it's another thing, and then it's a completely other thing. And there's this sense of betrayal here that works really, really well. The emotional stakes are there. I will give it a try. I think at some point I need to go back and, like you said, reread that first volume. Maybe, you know what? Maybe when this series finishes, I'll think I'll reread the two of them together. Like, I'll read Kim and Kim and Love is a Battlefield, and maybe... Maybe we'll talk about it in the podcast. Maybe I'll do an article about it for some various blogs I'm involved with. So, have you got any trade reviews? Oh, Sean. We are back to Tom Daz 2000 AD. Well, technically, we never left. Yeah, well, yeah. But instead of talking about some classic creation drawn up from my pit of uh, old graphic novels, we're going to talk something pretty new. Uh, Lawless, book one, Welcome to Bedrock, written by Dan Abnett, with art by Phil Winslade. And the this was published as a serial in the Judge Dredd magazine, issues 350 via to 376. So it's recent stuff, like started uh, early 2015 and ended just recently, I believe, the first book. Uh, Lawless is a story that takes place and the far edges of the Judge Dredd universe. Oh, okay. Like, and it is technically a sequel to a previous Dan Abbott series, uh, Insurrection. I don't know if you read that. The Insurrection bits only play into it towards the end of the series, towards the end of book one. What you need to know is this. We are in a far-off planet. It's a human colony of technically of Mega City 1. And because it's a far-off planet in science fiction setting... It's a mining plant, right? They have this strange ore that they need to mine, and it's very, very useful. And the Justice Department, after losing its original marshal, is sending a new judge to sort of be the supervisor of it all. Because it's a tough town, and you have, on one side, you have the corporation, uh, Munce Inc., which, they're, they're like the classic Judge Dredd mega corporation, right? The guys who make all the fake food and stuff. So you have the corporation running stuff and making every single effort to wring every single dollar or credit or what have you from the deal without actually, you know, being discovered that what they're doing is underhanded. And you have the human population, like the colonists. You have the local alien population. You have uplifted animals that serve as the local workforce. So you have like a gang of very angry apes trying to stand up on their own. And you have the robots who have gone full religious. Like, they've founded a church of machinery. And they're trying to convert humans into their own ways. Like, come human, you know, join us. Become with the one with the machine. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah, yeah. And so, we get this uh, new lady judge called uh, Marshall Lawson. 
And she comes in and she immediately starts to be this established law and order type, right? I'm going to set things straight. But uh, what Emnet does really well is build up a long-term mystery regarding who exactly Lawson is and what she is. Because 40 pages in, you start noticing because some other character notes, why are you using this gun that you stole from some guy on the street and you never fire your lawgiver at anybody? Why is it that there's no official records about you? If you're a judge, why don't you really act like a judge? Because we start thinking, oh, it's the outsider judge, right? It's the tough guy, who do- girl in this case, who does what she wants and screw the rules sort of thing. Very stock character. Yeah, yeah, you think that. But then, oh, wait, what if there's something else there? And when you start thinking, oh, she's a phony, she's like a fake judge for some reason, he throws in another wrench into it. By the end of the book, you're still not really sure. The mystery still holds. And he builds this up really well with a long-term mystery. And there's also a strong sense of supporting cast. Like she has her clerk, who's also technically a judge, but she's a judge who wants to be a clerk, who never wants to fire a gun in her life, and is in love with doing paperwork. And she has her love interest in term in the form of a local bounty hunter. And all, like I said, there's the uplift uh, gang of, like, talking apes. And the leader of that gang, the guy who starts off as the, the tough antagonist and then sort of develop a respect for her, is called Kilimanjaro. <laughs> Kill a Manjaro. Which, like, it's the great tooth. Like, it's the great tooth. It's a great 2003 parody name. Like, it's John Wagner would think of something like that. So well done for Dan Abbott for playing that one. And it manages to do, like, a straight science fiction story. You could enjoy it even if you don't know anything about the Judge Red universe. Because it is basically, a, you know, space western. It's a marshal in a new town. And there are all the known tropes, but he plays them really well. And he builds up the mystery, and he builds up the character. We we do have, like, throughout the whole series, there's the guy who was the marshal before, who was a side judge, who's gone crazy. And you start thinking, oh, it's the Hannibal Lecter character. He's stuck in his cell, and he makes all those vague threats about, you know, the darkness that is coming here. But he might be right. He might be that this town, this planet, is driving people crazy. And that he pulls all those weirdos, all those people like him and Marshall Lawson towards it, and drives them over the edge. And you don't really know. Like, I finished it, and I really want... I can't wait for book to come out. And because it's 2000, it's probably going to take forever to come out, and even further forever to be collected. Phil Winslade does it in black and white, which is not something you see a lot in the Judge Dredd magazine nowadays. Well, it used to be the, the standard. Well, right? in 2000 AD, but when Judge Dredd magazine started, it was, you know, a high production, color, color pages all the way. You don't have a lot of serials in black and white nowadays. I think there's only Defoe, and when they do the uh, Mega City Underground type thing, the... And I guess Absalom, if it's still running. Oh, right, right. I, uh, they're reprinting Absalom. I don't know if there are new uh, stories right now. So it's black and white, but it's like striking and well-told. And the characters are all have their unique design and they look cool. Uh, there's like super cool tech. There's this uh, automatic horse that they use to jump around canyons and stuff, which, you know, I, I, I put that one on my shelf. I will say... There's this long action scene towards the end on the train, because again, you're doing a space western. There better be a train chase, right? Which is a bit too chaotic for its own good, with characters moving around all along the train and jumping in and jumping out, and I'm a bit lost regarding 
who is where, it feels like a classic 2000 AD. Like, it feels like something that you could have put on your shelf right next to your Nikolai Dantes and your Judge Dredd and your Strontium Dogs. Like, a strong central character, a strong central concept, striking visual design. You have your action, you have your science fiction, you have your social satire. You have, it's like everything you want from a 2000 AD story. Well, Dan Abnett was always sort of the classic 2000 AD writer. I think I'm not as well-versed in who is still working at 2000 AD these days, but Abnett was one of the classics. He was around since the days like the, the early 90s. Yeah, like the post-Golden Age, but still keeping things going. Have you read any of his novels? Uh, I think I read one of his Durham Red tie-in novels, but it didn't... Something about it didn't click for me. Uh, he has this really uh, nice science fiction novel called Embedded, about a journalist in a futuristic war zone, because it's Dan Abbott. He loves his space marines. And the big idea is that he uses new technology to... Instead of embedding by just going with the troops... He's forcing his eyes into like the head of one of the soldiers and he's experiencing no like, like physically forcing like you know mind control tech like being John Malkoviching him and experiencing battlefield through the eyes of that marine and of course things go wrong it's this great thing with Abnet you know nothing is super new about these stories he's using well-worn ideas it's almost always space Marines it's almost always you know like the results of a future war it's a sequel to insurrection which was a A Space Marine Judge Dredd story, basically. It's always things that you've heard a million times, right? The Space Western, and uh, the robots versus the humans versus the alien locals. But he makes it work. He's like super solid storytellers. He knows how to make things work. He's as professional as professional writers get. And usually when I say, oh, it's just, it's really well told. I'm usually like, oh, it's boring. It's nothing new. But no, he makes it work. Yeah, he makes it work, I think, not so much... I mean, he does use very familiar and very well-worn tropes. But I think the difference is that when he does it, there's always a little bit of a wink and a nod to, you know, cliche. He never fully follows up, like, in terms of plotting with the stereotypical answer. Every now and then he thinks of a way to, like, fool the reader into thinking something's yeah. going to happen. Like I said, the, the big mystery regarding who Lawson is, you're thinking it's one thing, and then it's another thing, and then when you're sure you find your sure footing, it's something completely different. Exactly. That's something that he can do well, and I think it's that is exactly what freshens up sort of because anything else like any other space marine story would just be wrote at this point space marine is old it's tired we're, we're past it but he does manage to keep it fresh which is commendable by the way 2018 why is sinister dexter out of print like why isn't there complete collections of sinister dexter again isn't there we, we, no there are two collections and they only collect like i think two-thirds of the run And we've talked about it. We've oh, well, I mean, if we start talking about, like, the gaps in 2080's library, we will be uh, here. We, we've talked uh, two episodes before about Nikolai Dante, right? And before we started recording, I've talked to you about it on the internet, about, oh, I'm ordering Nikolai Dante. Guess what? Two volumes are missing. In the middle. In the middle. Not, not towards the end. In the middle. But this is the insane thing. Not just any two volumes. The two volumes that are missing in print are the climax of the entire first half of the story. The big, the big events. Like, you cannot skip those books under any circumstances. 
And I get a lot of effort is going towards keeping 20,000 Judge Dredd stories in print is, but come on, I can sell Nikolai Dante, right? If, if I work in a comic book shop, I can sell people on Nikolai Dante quite easy, but I, right now I can't recommend it to anybody because, well, buy this one and then wait five years, maybe they'll bring the rest of it back. It's uh, complicated. I just hope that they are going to keep up because, because so far... Uh, you, 2000 AD is doing a lot of work right now reprinting old, like super old comics that they bought the yeah. rights for. And I'm sorry, if you can bring back The Leopard of Lime Street, a 1970s Spider-Man knockoff with a boy in a leopard costume, you can bring back to Nikolai Dante. You can do the full Sinister Dexter. Well, you can do Sinister Dexter, you can print Abnett and Lanning's Durham Red, you can do the, uh, the later, no, it was, it was pretty good. No, no, I'm saying only in terms of, why do I have to make an effort to read that stuff? Because I'm sorry, and we've talked about it before, I'm not a big digital guy, I prefer to read in print, you know, the computer makes my header, why do I have to make an effort, why do I have to go to eBay and like hunt down all these old stuff over and over again? Well, I do have to wonder if maybe that's the reason. Like, to the best of my knowledge, uh, in terms of what I can see here, it does seem to me that the books that come out in, like, contemporary reprints and are made available are the ones that are released digitally first, presumably because they have high-quality, you know, high-quality scans of the artwork that they can then print. I'm assuming that's got something to do with it. Well, they, they gotta have scans of Nikolai Dante. It's not that old. It's not the Nikolai Dante, yes, but maybe the older stuff, like Sinister Dexter, not so much. Well, Sinister Dexter is not that old, right? It was the 90s. By that point, they should have had, like, a proper archive. So, yeah, you have intrigued me. I am gonna look into it. I do find myself, admittedly, like, with 2000 AD, I had this really weird relationship with the Dreadverse specifically, where... Stuff like Banzai Battalion, I can get into, but when it's Dread, centrally, I kind of lose interest because there's so much of it. Oh, Banzai Battalion, Banzai Battalion. You know, the, is the smaller tangential storylines, at least I can be like, you know, I like it. I'll give it a try. Uh, Banzai Battalion is wonderful, by the way. It's, if you haven't, if, uh, dear, dear listeners, if you haven't had any chance, it's about a group of tiny war robots whose job is to be like exterminators in a garden. And we've talked about space marines. They treat it like a serious war story, but you know, it's a bunch of one inch guys shooting, shooting off ants and, and mice and stuff. Tiny bad company. <laughs> Tiny bad company. Yeah. So, uh, you know, here you go. Two 2000 AD uh, graphic novel recommendations that you can buy in the very same episode. We are killing it. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I am also, I have been considering doing a deep dive and checking out some like 2080 stuff, contemporary classics. Um, I'm always on the edge of it because, you know, again, we're talking about an anthology that's been running for 40 years now. There's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm skimming the magazine and, uh, and the, and the weekly. But I usually, when I want to do a deep dive, I wait for a trade collection like the Lawless one. Because I, you know, I see what I like and where are the creators that I like doing an interesting concept. And I'm saying, we'll do this. Uh, if you want a nice Judge Dredd story, which is all pretty much self-contained, uh, there was a graphic collection of the Every Empire, Every Empire Fall storyline, which ran last year. And it's a pretty good one, one-off story, like a big ju- Judge Red story about what happens when Judge Red disappears. 
and the and the city has to sort of scramble what they do without their figurehead. And meanwhile, in the background, you have the sense that the other mega cities are trying to like take over from behind the scenes. Be- right. Because they, be because they consider Mega City one a disaster zone, saying, "Well, we sort of have to save them from themselves." So I recommend this one. So here you go, three two thousand eighteen recommendations, and we we better stop before it becomes too long, and we and two thousand eighteen have to pay us money. Oh, there will be a two thousand eighteen centric episode, I think, yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah. So uh, this was the smorgasbord. Yes. Uh, I'm Tom Shapiro, and I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, bon appetit. Thank you.